Good afternoon. You are listening to Drishti Point on CFRO 102.7. And we have here in the studio a very special guest who is from Naropa University, who's on the faculty there, and has written a number of books on enlightenment and Buddhism, and has studied for many, many years and practiced meditation within the Tibetan tradition. And it's Dr. Reggie Ray. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, it's good to have you here, and I know that this is not your first time in Vancouver, and you've been here before and plan to come back. I do, yeah. I came a year ago, uh, taught some meditation, uh, did some programs and lectures, and came back last August, and now we have a community here of about 35 or 40 people who are interested in studying meditation within the Tibetan tradition, so I'll be hopefully visiting here every six months or so into the future. Excellent. We talk a lot about meditation and different kinds of practices that bring inner peace and inner harmony. And one of the things that really attracted me to your talk in particular was that it's talking about enlightenment and finding realization in the body. Yeah, I think the way uh, meditation is taught, often within the Asian context, it's taught as an extremely embodied discipline. In our Western world, because people are often so disconnected from their bodies and disconnected from the earth, people often practice meditation as a strictly mental discipline. And you often find people who are simply trying to get out of their bodies, get out of their experience, and get out of their lives into some uh, arena of peace. So my training within the Tibetan tradition has made it very clear that that's not really what meditation is about. And if you practice meditation as a purely cerebral discipline, there's not going to be any journey, there's not going to be any unfolding, and you're not going to fundamentally change as a human person. I came to these uh, realizations after maybe 20 or 25 years of teaching meditation and finding that people who are disembodied, which pretty much includes all of us, get extremely stalled out on the meditative process. Now, I know as a yoga teacher that a lot of, for a lot of people to be embodied is very painful, especially at first if you've been used to living a life in your mind, that when you come into your body, it's full of aches and pains, it's full of stiffness, it's full of resistance, and it's very difficult. Yeah, this is true, and I would say not only do we have physical resistance to working with the body, but even more importantly, there's a tremendous amount of emotional resistance. Because as you know, as a yoga teacher, when you start working with the body, all of a sudden your range of experience begins to expand, and you begin to go through things, even in terms of your own inner life, that are new for you, new and painful. So working with the body, on the one hand, it has an enormous amount to offer us, in terms of our own development, but on the other hand, it's very challenging because there are all of these areas that we've been avoiding that we now have to encounter. So are the meditation practices that you teach, are they tools to help us navigate through that uh, difficult, the, all those difficulties and those obstacles and those experiences that do come up when we embody ourselves? Well, here's an interesting point. In the Western world, many psychologists have commented that uh, modern people throughout the world, and, and you know, particularly the West, which seems to be leading the modernization movement, many people are, seem to be strangely incapable of handling and tolerating the kinds of physical 
and emotional uh, experiences that come up when you start working with the body. And from a Tibetan viewpoint, there's a very simple reason why people can't handle things. The reason is that because when you're in your head, you don't have the somatic stability and the sense of physical confidence and the sense of being grounded in the earth that would enable you to handle pretty much anything that happens. There's an analogy that I often use with my students. Uh, The difference between a bird who's built a nest in the top of a tree in a storm and, you know, the tree is rocking back and forth, and eventually the nest gets blown out. And that is the, the person who's trying to meditate just in their head. On the other hand, we have the huge boulder that is sitting in the field. And during the storms that come up, all the storms of emotion and the storms of life and all the things we go through, that rock is absolutely solid and immovable. And whether we have a hurricane or rain or snow, it doesn't really matter. That's the image of a person who is fully grounded in their body and rooted in the earth. And for them, um, all of the emotional storms that are just part of being a, a human being in a full sense become very workable. So what are some of the practices and techniques for grounding and rooting to develop that, sen- that sven- foundation? Well, one of our most fundamental problems in the modern world is alienation from the earth. And if you know indigenous people, if you work with them at all, you know that one of the primary differences between modern people and traditional indigenous people is indigenous people have a very, very strong sense of the earth under them. And even as they walk on the earth, there's a sense that they're feeling and sensing this huge power under them that's supporting them. So one of the primary areas of development that I do with my students is what I call the earthwork, which means lying on the ground and extending your awareness down into the earth and opening your mind and opening your body. And eventually, through the work, you begin to feel that you and the earth are not separate and you are actually part of the earth, which, in fact, we are. Now, that's very interesting. It what comes to my mind is the experience of living in a city where for months you cannot experience your skin on the surface of the earth, like on sand or on grass, and how grounding that experience is when you can actually have that direct contact. It's very grounding, and the other thing it does is it brings a sense of tremendous inner peace. One of the um, surprising experiences, I think, in teaching meditation is You know, taking people outdoors, having them lie on the ground, having them feel the earth under them, almost immediately they can begin to feel the energy and the peace and the vastness of the earth, and that brings their body and and their mind into a state of tremendous calm, and it's almost immediate. It's very surprising how powerful it is simply to do that. Oh, I, I can understand that. I just know myself just being able to go in Vancouver to to where the ocean is mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. a a tremendous sense of peace just in sitting there and sometimes i feel like i could sit there for hours yeah this is a you know sometimes we think well i'm going out into nature and people notice that it makes them feel better and i think what we don't realize is this is not just an aesthetic experience this is just not a sidebar on our life But spending time in nature in that way actually changes you as a person if it's part of your life in a regular way. You become different as a person. And your human journey, your spiritual journey, which is incumbent on you as a human being, begins to unfold in a new way. So do you encourage people to have that direct contact with nature and with the outdoors and with the earth as part of their meditation practice? 
Well, my main focus actually is changing the relationship of people's uh, feeling of themselves to the earth. And I do that, I can do that pretty much strictly through meditation practices. But then my students, they get outdoors. As I, I mentioned before we started this interview, I live in the Sangha de Cristo Mountains in southern Colorado. Um, our house is at about 9,200 feet. And up right above us are for over uh, six or seven fourteen thousand foot mountains, and this is a very important part of our community life in this little uh, settlement in southern Colorado. That we get outdoors, we meditate outdoors, we go up into the mountains, and it, they just call you. You know, once your relation to the earth begins to open up, then you you feel called to be out there and to be communicating with the spirits. You know, it's funny you say that because whenever I spend time outdoors i feel like talking to the wind i feel like conversing with the trees and and i let myself do this so there's a part of my mind that sort of thinks it's sort of weird but i really do feel called to dialogue with nature when i when i spend time outside my training is in what's called the history of religions, and I spent uh, many, many, many years studying the indigenous traditions as well as the high religions. And one of the conclusions you come to is that the kind of sensitivity that you're talking about has been part of human history ever since the beginning. And, you know, consider we as human beings have been in close evolution for three million years. And during all of that time, the kind of sensitivity you're talking about has been very, very much part of human cultures and is still part of indigenous cultures everywhere. My personal feeling is that, uh, and this is something that I think geneticists and uh, people who've done research into uh, historical biology will, will confirm, is that that sensitivity is part of our genetic makeup. And when you consider that the movement away from the indigenous way of life, which didn't happen until agriculture 10,000 years ago, when you consider that that last 10,000 years compared to the previous 3 million, it has absolutely no uh, biological and evolutionary significance, meaning that we are indigenous people at heart, and we have that sensitivity within us. And the minute we begin working with the body and working with the earth, we indeed begin to realize this world is alive with spirit, with presence, with intelligence, and we are being watched just as much or even more than we're watching this world around us. And it's possible, I imagine, to feel the presence of the Earth's energy even when you live in a city among the vibrations that a city in an urban center brings. We can still find that connection and feel those the frequencies of earth energy you can because the uh, energy of a city and the energy of us as modern people are very superficial it's like a very thin coat of ice on the earth and underneath there's all this vast uh, realm of being and aliveness and so totally we can turn into it that is very hopeful and inspiring, and uh, I'm looking forward to learning more and talking more, but we're going to take a very short break and listen to some Canadian music of a no, uh, someone from the East Coast, Laurel McDonald and Lashina's Lullabies, and when we come back, we'll listen more to Enlightenment in the Body.
We are back in the studio. You are listening to CFRO 102.7 FM Drishti Point, and we're here talking to Reggie Ray, who has been talking about enlightenment, and in particular, how we can embody ourselves or feel embodied in order to find that place of peace and to find what we think of as enlightenment. And over the break, we were just talking a little bit about how exciting it is to have been born at this time in history because of what's happening in terms of our evolution. I think often people um, feel that the time they're living in is unusual. But I think at this time, we actually are truly living in an age of huge transformation spiritually in terms of human beings. The first million years of our history before the invention of agriculture there was no separation between spirituality and ordinary life. To be a human being, to, to be embodied, to live on this earth, to experience nature, was in itself a spiritual fulfillment. And with the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago and following, and the uh, coming about of organized religions, we have the second phase in human spirituality where we separated completely. We turned nature into an object. We began to exploit and despoil nature. We began to destroy the environment. There are signs of environmental degradation already, you know, 8,000 years ago. So as soon as we started trying to rape nature through agriculture, then the downward process began. And all of the major organized religions that we know about are agricultural religions, and they reflect more or less this disembodiment. But now we're living in a new age, and I feel we're really in the third phase of human spiritual development, meaning that the organized religions have truly failed us. When we look at what's happened to the planet and we see that the values not only of our Western traditions, but actually worldwide, that, that the values of religion have undergirded the destruction of the planet, and this can be shown uh, historically in a very clear way, we realize the organized religions have failed us. And what's happening for many, many people in this world is they're returning to their indigenous roots. And the kind of uh, sensitivity we talked about before the break, sensitivity to nature, um, respect for the otherness of nature, a sense that we are co-partners in this beautiful world and not here to simply take what we can get, that sensitivity represents a return to the earlier history of who we have always been as human beings since the beginning. You know, when you talk about nature, I get a sense that there's um, you could characterize it as divinity in nature, and indigenous cultures did attribute divine qualities to nature, or um, you know, their divinity was and nature was intertwined. I think that it's it's more than attributing qualities to nature. You see, if you put it that way. It's sort of like nature's out there, and then we attribute something to it. But through the work of uh, modern psychologists, and I'll just mention one person, Merleau-Ponty, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, a very uh, famous French psychologist, he demonstrated in the last century that the way 
children perceive nature, which is that nature is alive and nature is communicating and nature is filled with spirituality, that actually is what exists under the surface of all people, including modern people. That is actually our basic, inherent, evolutionarily determined experience of nature. When we see nature as dead and and as uh, having no particular life or value, that actually is a pathological development of the modern mentality. Fascinating. That's fascinating, and that would, I would imagine, lead us to the pathological problems that we have in our modern society. Exactly. When you're not in touch with nature and you don't see, you know, take a relationship. We talk a lot about sexism, and in Western culture, there's, particularly during the 50s, you know, there was a whole pattern that developed of men viewing women as extensions of themselves, men dominating and controlling women. You know, that's a very disempowering and dehumanizing uh, situation for everybody, including the men. Well, we're in the same relationship with nature today. We haven't, we, we've, we're starting to get somewhere in terms of the sexes, the genders, but we're not getting anywhere in terms of nature. We still view nature not as a sacred other, but as something that is simply an extension of our own egos. And that's not going to work, and it's not healthy. It makes people sick. The whole movement in eco-psychology um, today is to really demonstrate that a person who's out of sync with nature is a sick individual. Interesting. I read some writings um, written by Gary Snyder and some of the um, people who wrote about eco-philosophy. And yes. it was... And I've even read a lot about, you know, Henry David Thoreau and mm-hmm. uh, Waldo Emerson, I think. That's right. Who really had a very deep connection to nature. Yes, and they really understood what we're talking about here. Both Thoreau and Emerson are viewed as a sort of first ecologists in the Western world. Um, Gary Snyder is absolutely wonderful. I recommend his books highly. He mm-hmm. He's a person who really understands th- that we must... We must co-inhabit the planet with nature in the way that we must co-inhabit with other humans. There's no difference. You know, I'm always, I subscribe to a journal called Heron Dance, and it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful journal, and they talk a lot about wilderness and nature and our own inner journey. And I'm always amazed that when I'm in nature and I'm able to let go of the separation because you know the first couple days that i go away from a city and i get into nature there's still a part of my mind that's in the city yes and that's not fully present right but when i'm able to let go of it there's a different sense of time there's a different flow of energy there's a different sense of creativity there's a different i feel like i flow in my life very different from when i'm not in nature that's very very true and um i think what what's happening there is uh it's very beautiful and very sacred which is that you are tapping into a deeper level of your own being that is already synchronized with nature but we miss it we lose it it becomes covered over with our busy lives and our distraction and and all our ambitions so how is it possible you know my husband and i we Whenever we go away to Vancouver Island, which is one of our favorite places, we always think, gosh, this is so great. We feel so nourished here. We got to move here. We got to get away from our life in Vancouver. Um, But how is it possible to connect with that energy and bring it into here 
into this city, into where we live, to embody it in what we do here. You know, many people feel that way, um, the way you, you expressed. Um, some people actually feel we need to go to the Amazon, we need to go to Australia, we need to um, somehow become part of a Native American situation. We need to go somewhere else, the way you're talking about. We need to go back to nature. We need to move somewhere else. You know, the the sensibility that we're talking about is it's not a matter of going somewhere. It's a matter of changing the focal length of one's own consciousness. And that's where meditation comes in. There's a saying in Tibetan Buddhism that enlightenment is found in the body and it's found nowhere else. Meaning that the more time we spend with meditation practices that bring us into the body, the more that sensitivity that you're looking for develops no matter where we are. And it's much better for us actually to change ourselves than to have to be changing location constantly to get the kinds of experiences we want. Absolutely, and I think it's so much more needed here because I think people who do live in places where they are in closer contact with nature are already in that rhythm and don't have the problems of alienation and separation that I would say urbanized city dwellers experience more regularly. Well, to some extent that's true, but you'd be very surprised if you go out and talk to people who are farmers or you talk to people who live in the wilderness. Often as not, even though they're in these places and they feel better, their relationship to nature hasn't fundamentally changed because they haven't fundamentally changed. Mm. One of the the interesting things about Buddhism, and this would be true of, of many of the Asian traditions, is that you can fundamentally change yourself as a human being through spiritual practice. You can actually become a different person in the sense of, of how connected you feel to things. And then, it, it, as you say, it doesn't at that point doesn't really matter whether you're living in a city or on a mountaintop because you're different and your relation to the earth is different and the kind of nourishment and satisfaction and fulfillment that you're looking for is there in every moment of your life. Now, that that's definitely seems like something that I think all people desire fundamentally. I agree. And let's talk a little bit more about the process, because the process of getting embodied and, and what that entails, because I think the tendency, especially within um, people who practice yoga, is sometimes to focus on the experiences of bliss and the experiences of peace. And it, in a sense, for me, it, it gives only one side of the story because there's also a lot of challenging work that has to be done. At least that's what I've experienced. I've practiced different kinds of meditation, including Vipassana. And sometimes I feel like a meditation practice involves moving through very difficult experiences and very painful experiences, and there's that aspect to it as well. Yeah, we say that there are two stages in the meditative process. The first one you've referred to a few times, which is developing a sense of peace. And that actually is very important ground. You know, you need to develop a sense of uh, groundedness, um, being at one with the earth, a feeling of being in your body, being really solidly there as a meditator, which leads to a tremendous sense of openness and peace. But that's only the first stage. And then the second stage is what's called the development of insight, which means, as you say, it means that we begin to see where we're blocked and where we're locked up, and we begin to see where we're holding back. We begin to see where we're cut off from life. We begin to see how we are participating in, in various ways in the problems of other people and 
and um, we're not working out our relationships in the way that we need to. All this information of where we're stuck begins to come through, and this is very, very painful. But at the same time, as Buddhism says, when you see it, you become free of it. And so we see these layers upon layers upon layers, and, and yet, but simply by seeing and being willing to hold the information that's coming through, we gradually unravel the tangle of ego, and we gradually become free in a very big way. And you can say free for what? Free to enjoy our lives, free to fly in the big space of awareness, free to explore the universe, free to love other people. You know, there's free to be completely who we are. So peace is good, but freedom is better. Mm. I never thought of it that way. Freedom. 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 Completely free. Imagine, you know, imagine that you're like an eagle and you're in a cage on the edge of a cliff and you have an overcoat on and a hat and the cage is bolted. And one day somebody, and you think you're just this, you know, person in an overcoat. And one day somebody opens the cage and you look out and you look out over the cliff and you see your true home is in that vast, endless space ahead of you. And you can see the brilliant sun and you can see the endlessness of the sky. And all you want to do is fly. And so you drop off your coat and your, your boots and your hat and you f- jump out into the space and you spread your wings. This is what we were born for. It's our birthright. It's our birthright. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that 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 idea of freedom will resonate. And I definitely think that in order to experience that freedom, you have to create space. And that involves clearing, like you said, of experiences that come up and blockages that come up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And in the Buddhist tradition, there's a belief in past lives. Yes, there is. So can you talk a little bit about how, I mean, do you find that in meditation practices that you teach that it involves whether we're conscious or or not, but experiences from our previous incarnations? The whole belief in past lives is something that Buddhism inherited from Indian tradition. And I think as with many things in Asian Buddhism, We need to uh, take a critical look at this and see. You know, the Buddha said to his own students, um, anything that I teach you, don't take it at face value. Don't believe it just because even I said it. You have to look at it and examine it within your own framework and see if it makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, dump it. Get rid of it. And I think incarnation is, uh, reincarnation is, is as as a literal teaching i don't find it helpful for anybody because it takes your focus away from this life but if incarnation is viewed as a sort of metaphor for the fact that we as humans are on some kind of extremely long spiritual journey that happened before we were born and it's going to keep on going then i think it's helpful hmm very interesting On that note, let's take another musical break. We're going to listen to some more music by Laurel McDonald. This is one of my favorites. It's called Murmur of a Pearl. And uh, when we come back, we will continue to talk with Dr. Reggie Ray and continue to be inspired. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Drishti Point, 102.7 CFRO. If you just tuned in, you're listening to an interview with Dr. Reggie Ray, who's on faculty at Naropa University and is here in town talking about enlightenment in the body and embodying enlightenment. And on that exact question, Reggie, why don't you tell us what it feels like to experience enlightenment in the body? Well, I'll come back to what I said a little bit ago, which is that in the Tibetan tradition, it's said that enlightenment is found in the body and nowhere else. What does that really mean? Um, All of us have a body image, and we have ideas of what the body is. Um, And these particular ideas are very externalized, and actually, strangely enough, they cut us off from the actual experience of having a human body. 
when we begin to dismantle what we think about our bodies and we actually begin to put our awareness into our bodies, um, a certain kind of journey unfolds in deepening, deepening sensitivity of the body. Initially, uh, you begin to find out that you're able to be sensitive to your body in very, very minute ways. For example, uh, if you ask most people to put their awareness into their big toe, they're not going to really be able to tell you very much if they can even feel anything. But after a while, you begin to feel the big toe and every other part of your body that you put your attention down to almost a cellular level. You can feel the process of the body. You can feel the density, the tension, the blood flow, the lymph flow. Uh, you can tell the difference between bones. So the initial thing is coming into a, a tremendously sensitive awareness of the interior of the body. And it's interesting, this has huge health benefits because when you put your awareness into your body, and this has been demonstrated by a lot of different researchers, the oxygenation in that place goes way up. So we're talking about uh, something that is not only increasing awareness of our body, but it's actually promoting healing in the body. And then the, the second thing you start to discover is that as your awareness deepens, you begin to realize the body is a flow of energy that actually the experience of physicality begins to resolve itself into energy. The body is nothing other than energy. And then, of course, there's a huge amount to explore here throughout the whole body, and every different part of the body has different profiles of energy. And then the third level is that you begin to discover when you put your awareness in certain places in the body that's a gateway or a doorway to the, the infinite universe. There's a saying in Tibetan Buddhism that the space within the body is much bigger than the space outside, experientially. And you feel like you've dropped into a hole and everywhere you look, awareness is endless. It has no boundary and no limit. And truly, you experience your being as infinite. And that kind of openness and freedom is actually what enlightenment is. It's openness and freedom, as we were talking about before the break. You know, on the level of quantum physics, that's exactly what science has discovered now, is that at the most minute levels, it's just space. Exactly. You know, from atoms and molecules down to electrons to the the most minute level and and that that experience of space that experience is the experience of freedom and infinity and eternity that's right exactly yeah so much to digest and assimilate here all these um bits and pieces of of wisdom and insight and i'm not sure where i want to go next but I know there was another question that uh, I was supposed to ask, but I've forgotten about it. But why don't you just tell us more, whatever comes to your mind? Well, one thing that uh, you and I were talking about during the break is the, um, I, I've mentioned a few times during this interview, this, this journey of unfolding of the human person. Um, if we look at indigenous traditions, we find that there's a whole process of uh, a whole process of human life that begins with birth and it goes through life stages up until old age. And at, at the point of old age in indi indigenous societies, you begin to become one of the ancestors. You begin, even while you're alive, you begin to become the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and the sky and the sun and the moon. In other words, your being becomes the totality. 
many people um, today who are doing research into indigenous traditions, both contemporary and historical, speculate that this actually is the inborn, genetically determined journey that every human being must make in order to feel fulfilled. At the same time, uh, Eric Fromm and Karen Horney and Harry Stack Sullivan and some of the later psychologists have showed us that modern people often not only do they not get out of adolescence emotionally, many modern people, the majority, never even get out of a kind of uh, pre-adolescent dependency on other people and on authority figures and on power. In other words, our emotional development as modern people is uh, it's truncated, it's cut off, it's injured, it's impaired. And what happens when we start working with the body, you see, we're working with an indigenous body. When we work with the body in the way I'm talking about, we are working with an indigenous body. We're beginning to tap into the intelligence and sensitivity and the momentum for change that exists in the body. And we begin to find ourselves changing. And we begin to find ourselves going through the same process of unfolding and even initiation into reality that indigenous people experience. This is why I think this teaching is so radical, because it's basically saying we can jettison organized religion. All we need to do is focus on who we are as human beings, be willing to be present to who we are in a very deep way, and then the, the human journey that's innately part of us begins to unfold towards its completion. Now, what do you mean when you say we begin to change? How do we change? Do our personalities change? Do our, or is it that our inner experiences change and that change, changes the way we interact and perceive the world? Uh, the very nature of our ego begins to un- undergo a change. This is something else that's not understood very well. We're not talking about getting rid of the ego in spiritual development, but what we are talking about is helping the ego relax so that new information can come in and the ego can die and be reborn in a more open and more extended and more compassionate form. What happens is we as people, let's say we start being a very kind of preoccupied, busy city dweller who has no space in their calendar and is never alone. If TV's not on, then they're with people or on the phone with the newspaper. They're never, ever alone. And what we end up with, you know, after maybe some years of practice, is a person who is very still. And there really is a sense that they've eliminated from their lives all of the unnecessary distractions, and their state of mind begins to become one that is peaceful and deep and connected. And even if they're in a city, they they connect with people. They look at people and they feel the natural love for them that is part of our human inheritance. It's a change in the way we go about things. You know... I, I've been on a silent retreat, and I, I try to incorporate silent practices into my daily life. And when I share the experience of going on a silent retreat, I'm surprised at how many people are scared of it, that they feel they couldn't do that, that it's, it's very threatening for them. And on one level, I can understand, because when you're in silence, there's nothing but your mind to contend with and nothing about your your own obsessions and uh, uh, things that come up. But there isn't a lot of silence that we have in our modern life. I would say there's almost no silence in our modern life. I think you're very right. I find the same thing. Uh, retreat practice is a very, very important part of the training in our lineage. Um, 
I myself go away every year for two to three months of complete and total solitude, and I, I don't talk to anybody. And I've been doing this for you know almost forty years, every single year. And uh, initially, it is scary because you have to actually let go of all the stuff you do, you know, all of your busyness and all of your self-importance and all of the the way you've built yourself up. And you have to let go of your relationships temporarily. It's really difficult. But, you know, there is one other thing that happens besides the pain, which you probably notice, which is after a little while, your mind and your heart and your body start opening up and you begin to realize the power and the depth and the beauty of this world that we live in. And as you told me before, at the beginning of this interview, you begin to feel synchronized with the underlying primordial world that we all live in. Mm-hmm. It's a huge payoff and it nourishes you. I mean, for me, the nourishment I get out of that retreat carries me, you know, through the rest of the year beautifully. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I met a student who um, told me, she's from Brazil, and told me that they now have um, a movement against advertising because it's a form of mind pollution, I think she said. And I think about the society in which we live in and how polluted are uh, so many aspects of our media are in terms of bombarding us with information and personally I don't have a TV um, I don't listen to the radio other than co-op radio and uh, it's incredible how sometimes in a lot of households people have the TV running all the time well you have to realize the this whole world of uh, particularly TV and the media and advertising is actually extraordinarily toxic for modern people because the, the continual message is one of complete disempowerment. I mean, what is being communicated is your life is not good enough as it is, and you need to buy, you need to make more money and buy more things in order to be okay. What that does is it cuts people off even further from the dignity and beauty of their own life. I mean, it's, there's a, a book called uh, Eco Psychology. Uh, that is very well known, uh, and one of the essays in the book talks about modern advertising as one of the main reasons why people are so unable to connect with the natural world, because the message over and over and over is you need to accumulate more and more and more and more just to feel okay, and that is completely wrong. It's one of the. It's probably the biggest lie in modern culture. The way to feel okay is actually to start tuning into who you already are, not to get more stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. My husband and I traveled in Cuba, and it was so wonderful, so refreshing to travel in a country where there was no advertising and where people were really not tapped into that and, and cut off from that. And there was definitely a different flow of life. And in the cities where people had access to tourists, there was a real sense of dissatisfaction. Yeah, very much so. And I, I know, you know, in terms of my own travels and my friendships with people in other cultures, I mean, people regard, you know, Western tourists as some of the most pitiful, empathetic, and disconnected people they've ever met in their <laughs> life. And they truly do. I mean, they, they play up to them, you know, and so on. But the, if you actually talk to them, they, they feel, what are these people doing here? Why aren't they home sort of meditating on the mountain behind their, you know, their house? I mean, what are they doing over here? I know. It's so true. You know, sometimes I get the desire to travel, and then I think, well, why? There's so much beauty here in this place, in this country where I live, which is vast, and in just 
within a hundred kilometers of where I live, and even within ten kilometers of where I live. Yeah, there's a saying in uh, Indian Buddhism, actually, which is uh, you know kind of where it all started. That uh, there was a famous uh, meditator, and he spent his whole life basically in a in a four by four uh, little hut meditating, and he never went anywhere. And he, some friends came to him one day and said, you know, let's go on pilgrimage. I mean, let's go see the sacred places. Let's go see the country. I mean, you, you've got to be bored in here. And he said, the world, there is no world more worth exploring and more fascinating. There's no place that, that is more uh, compelling than my own body. And within my body are the sacred uh, Ganges and the Yamuna River, and all the sacred places of the world are here. And I can, I can find them in a moment. And you're going to go out and you're going to wander around and you may find them and you not, may not and you may die in the process. Everything is here in the body. Everything here is in this moment already. Which means that we all have, we all have it. We, we all, all have, have it, it. By birthright of being born human. Yes, we do. And we all have the potential, the possibility, the ability. And it's just a matter of initiating of starting of of uh, continuing the journey i would say that not only are we uh, able to do it but i think as humans we're called to it and i think that in this day and age now there's an imperative that each of us is feeling that we must make this full human journey we must find out who we are as people we must give birth to our individuality we must find out what it is that we uniquely have to give to this world only in that way will we find our own fulfillment as human beings we're, we're never going to be happy if we don't make the journey so i think it's one that is really pressing on all of us incumbent on us and as we were talking a little bit ago it's it's only in that way that the there's any hope of healing families and healing the planet and healing the um, you know the global situation, which means that uh, the possibility of a better world of healing the planet exists and does exist. The potential does exist. The potential is there, and I think we're being called to it. This, I mean, we were talking a minute ago about the unique uh, demands of the current situation and the unique opportunities of the current situation, you know, in order to become ourselves, in order to be happy, we actually have to save the planet. There's no choice. I like that message. I definitely like that message. Well, when you come back, you come back here to Drishti Point, and we'll, we'll talk specifically about eco-philosophy and, and more about our connection with nature, because I think that is a really important part of the message that you're talking about, and definitely warrants an entire discussion on its own. I would love that. Excellent. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear about how to get in touch with Dr. Reggie Ray and a little bit about where he's going to be this weekend. But in the meantime, we're going to listen to Deva Pramal sing from sing from Love is Space, and it's the Heart Sutra and the Last Words of the Buddha.
Dr. Reggie Ray is here in the studio and is uh, just about to leave us for this week's show, but hopefully we'll be back in a couple months' time. How can listeners get in touch if they're more interested in, in getting in touch with you or attending one of your lectures? I think the easiest thing is to go onto our website, which is dharmaocean.org, D-H-A-R-M-A, ocean, one word, dot org. And all the information on this Vancouver visit, as well as all my other programs, is there. Uh, just for people to know, um, this uh, tonight, when is the show airing, by the way? Monday from 5 to 6. Okay, well, this will have been passed, but what I will have done is a couple lectures this week at the SFU Ocean Campus and then a weekend program next week. But I will be back in August, so people could look for that. I'll be back in mid-August, and I'll be doing uh, a number of different programs and events in this area and then something up at Hollyhock as well. Excellent. So if you didn't catch him this time, then definitely keep an eye out on dharmaocean.org for Dr. Reggie Ray's Vancouver schedule and... Uh, keep posted on when he comes back to Vancouver. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you back.
six, just past six o'clock, six o one here at CFRO. 102.7 FM, and this is MTS Puppet. It's time for the rational uh, here on 102.7 FM and on the World Wide Web at www.cooperate.org and on channel uh, channel 845 on Star Choice satellite. It's cold out there, but uh, we'll hopefully warm you up uh, this evening with our show with a variety of things. Um, and we are the rational, we're not the national, but we talk about issues that are very important to us uh, locally and around the world. And joining us on the phone is uh, Marcus Yusuf uh, from New World Theatre. He's a collaborating director of My Name is Rachel Corey, which is currently playing at the Havana Theatre behind the Havana Restaurant. Um, Marcus, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, MTS, for having me. So, um, yeah, this is a very challenging play. Yeah, it's, um, it's a show we've been, um, we've been with for a long time. We did, uh, see, I first read it uh, just as it was first produced at the Royal Court Theatre in uh, 2005, the spring of 2005, when I was teaching at Concordia University in a political theatre program there. And, um, and we've been kind of in relationship to the play since then. We did a, a staged reading with community-based actors. It's a one-woman show, but we actually, in, in, at the World Urban Forum in 2006 here in Vancouver, we actually hired 11 non-professional actors, ages 11 to 60, ISM. 